This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty is brought to you by the Wizard Pocket Computer. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty, the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 97. Today's guest is a best-selling author and essayist. He was a founding member of Grantland with Bill Simmons. In addition to writing for several prominent publications, he's authored 11 books. His latest book, The 90s, is available for pre-order now and will be released on February 8th. Chuck Klosterman, thank you for listening. If you dig it, please pass it on. Follow us on Twitter at This Thirsty, Instagram at This Thirsty. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Episode 97, Chuck Klosterman. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 97. Today's guest is a best-selling author and essayist. He was a founding member of Grantland with Bill Simmons. In addition to writing for several prominent publications, including Spin, GQ, Esquire, and ESPN, he has authored 11 books, including Fargo Rock City, a heavy metal odyssey in rural North Dakota, and Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, a low culture manifesto. His latest book, The 90s, is available for pre-order now and will be released on February 8th of this year. And of course, he has woven Seinfeld throughout his pop culture writing, including the essay, Why Seinfeld is the Most Villainous Sitcom in Human History, Deep Satire is a Collision Sport. We are super excited to talk with him. Please welcome Chuck Klosterman. Chuck, thanks for joining. Hey, it's great to be here. <laughs> All right, Chuck. Yeah, really excited about um, your new book because, you know, we are 80s and 90s children. Um, so take us back. 1990, you actually graduated from good old Windmere High School in North Dakota, went off to college, and pretty much that's when Seinfeld took its root. So take us back. When did you first become a fan of Seinfeld? Was it, did you watch it live? Was it your college years? Or did you get more into it uh, through reruns? Well, it was the initial run. I mean, I was familiar with Seinfeld as a stand-up from the 80s, um, just because I was the kind of person who was always vaguely interested in what was kind of going on with stand-up comedy. And and he was a pretty high-profile person by the end of that decade. It was, uh, uh, you know, in some ways, I think it is interesting, his comedic style was sort of going against the grain of what the overall direction of comedy seemed like at the time. There was a real emphasis in the late 80s and early 90s on people who would kind of use comedy almost as a way to like open a vein and just kind of emote their pathos and, and their discomfort with life. And he didn't do that. He was an observational comedy. Um, and yet his worldview was was very clear. It was very natural and organic. So I liked him as that. So the show starts. And, um, you know, uh, I think that I initially watched it. Pretty casually, just in the sense that, well, it's on television. I'll see what this is. <laughs> it was during college that I, I think the idea of it having a meaning that seemed to transcend most other television became something that me and my friends sort of, uh, I can't wordlessly agreed upon. They're like it's yeah. like we, I, I don't remember a conversation where we were like, you know what, this is the show we like. This is the, this is an, an important situation comedy or whatever it just sort of felt that way 
Um, and, and, you know, and then when I graduated in 1994, that is when Friends started and Friends was competing with my so-called life on Thursdays and Seinfeld was already kind of entrenched. And, uh, you know, those two programs seem to be dealing more with like what was going on, like in the culture itself. And yet it was actually Seinfeld now that seems more defining of that period. I think that when you see an episode of Friends, um, it seems as though the idea was that it almost existed outside of time. And if you'd watch a drama like My So-Called Life, it seems almost obsessed with the time period that was happening. Where Seinfeld, without trying, inadvertently sort of reflected, I don't know, in my opinion at least, sort of the way to think about comedy during that era. You know, that that yeah. that it was the distillation sort of of a kind of an ironic distance from everything and a, a separation uh, of yourself from the world at large, which doesn't really exist anymore. Right. No, it's interesting. You know, you brought up a point, too, about like how back then in the 90s when sitcoms were happening with comedians, you know, it was like Roseanne or Tim Alec. They're they're very um, family oriented or or it was, you know, relationship oriented. And uh, when Seinfeld came out, it was more of like, this is, this is a single, this is just life. This is just this, this, uh, you know, what life is actually really like for these people that are, you know, single and, and going through their life. But what I found interesting too is in the nineties and you mentioned his stand up because he's not known as like, he's not blue and he's not a rebel, but, but because the show was under the late night banner and sort of, you know, was a, almost an outsider. No one there had any experience writing for sitcoms. We were talking earlier, you know, we had we talked to some of the original writers on the show. None of them had any sitcom history at all. Larry David never ran a show before. So they left them alone and allowed them to grow. But in that era, and I know, you know as someone, you know, obviously wrote a book in the 90s, but, you know, you had guys like, you know, Tom Green came up from local access television, got MTV. Quentin Tarantino was working in a movie store and and, and Kevin uh, Smith made clerks. And it was like, you could be this indie guy and then get big on the big, like on, on a bigger level. Right. And, and Seifel sort of did that too. Like he, you know, he gets on NBC. I, I, he was a, he was a well-known comedian. He was on Carson, but it still felt underground. No one was talking about the show a lot. Like you said, like it kind of just came up on us. Um, so I guess my question is, would it have, you know, did it succeed because of that? Like being sort of, you know, not like, here's a new show with Jerry Seinfeld, the star. You've seen him on Carson. Check it out. It wasn't really like that. It was like, hey, there's a show that like some people are liking. It's weird. It's different. It's not like anything else on TV. So I don't know. It's kind of a take I wanted to get your take on. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I suppose I, I, I vaguely disagree with that being the explanation for why it became popular. Although... Okay. In the midst of this question, I think you bring up some very like central things. Okay, Roseanne, for example. Okay, there's a situation where we're taking this comedian, this major comedian, and the idea is like, okay, now we got to place her in this alien setting. We're going to give her this new husband and these new kids, and she sort of builds her comedy around being this, this, you know, as a housewife and sort of this edgy, performative person. But now we have to create this whole world for her to be in. Seinfeld did not do that as much. I mean, yes, the people on Seinfeld are not Jerry's real friends in life, but obviously the main character is based on his uh, closest sort of friend. Kramer is based on that close Kramer. friend's yeah. memory of a, of a neighbor. Uh, Elaine is based on a woman they knew. Uh, they didn't try to give him a different job. You know, it'd been very, it would have been very easy to be like, well, okay, let's have this Jerry Seinfeld character. Let's have him be a writer, a struggling writer. They're like, no, he's going to be a comedian. and 
let's have him basically be roughly as successful as he is in real life. Like they did all these things that now don't seem that surprising that we just sort of assume, well, you know, that's, you know, that's meta communication or whatever. It's like, you know, there's a second message here because people know these things about the person's real life and they're seeing the fictional version. Um, but I, I think the reason that, that Seinfeld was successful was that it looked superficially like a normal sitcom, but the comedic sensibility was not. Mm. Like, and, and I think that when you look at shows that attempted to replicate um, the way Seinfeld was, like one example I use in this book was there was an ABC show called like, um, um, it was like a, uh, it had a guy from uh uh, from a Noah Baumbach movie in it. And, and, and it was sort of like, you know, it's, it was called, it's, it's like, you know, like, and it was like, it was trying to kind of capture the way Seinfeld's kind of invented language by the sense of that. These are people just like, you know, almost filling time with their dialogue or worked attempts to replicate Seinfeld. And um, I, I, I think that's a very interesting detail because obviously it was the most successful sitcom of that period. So one assumes that they would have wanted to replicate it many times and it never really happened. Yeah. Well, it, it's like, you know, it was created by Peter, Pel Peter Melman, one of the uh, original Seinfeld writers. So there you go. Um, so Susie, you mentioned in your book, uh, Chuck Ross Perot, the 19%, right? Like, we don't know if he got credit for winning or for Clinton winning the election. And then you, you kind of touched on and you brought that into sports, right? Would, uh, would the Rockets have won if Michael Jordan didn't retire, right? Kind of all these kind of what ifs. So I guess my question is, and we're talking about the success of Seinfeld, would Seinfeld have been what it is if it didn't move to Thursday nights, right? I mean, I know you're a big numbers guy. Look at the ratings. Like, at the end of the day, on Wednesday, it was doing anywhere between 11 and, you know, 17 million average. But the move to Thursday, boom, catapulted the 30 million right away, right away every week. And it kind of put it just on a completely different level. If it stayed on Wednesdays, would we think of it the same way if it didn't have those ratings? I think what that do you if think? it had stayed, if, it's, if, it had, if it had remained a smaller show, uh, it's possible it would be looked at maybe like, oh, a show like Herman's Head or it's uh, Gary Shandling's show. One of these, yeah. yeah, one of these, one of these programs that is, that would have this sort of this cultic following. The move to Thursday is interesting because that is something that, uh, the, the awareness of that by advertisers really increased in the 80s and 90s, this idea that, well, we think people go out on Fridays and Saturdays, but they'll stay home on Thursday. Thursday will be the last night that they'll watch television before Sunday again. So I suppose that did help, although I would almost argue that Seinfeld sort of almost promoted the idea of Thursday being this meaningful thing more than the other way around. Right. Um, I, 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 certainly I can't say like, well, it wouldn't have mattered when they aired it. It was going to be hugely successful. That's probably not true. But the, I mean, the main thing that we all know is what's the main thing that makes something popular. The fact that it's popular already. Like there's, there's nothing that draws an audience, like the perception that a audience already exists for something. I right. mean, there's this show like, uh, recently it was like somebody was noting how this show Yellowstone now is much more popular than City Succession in terms of the number of people watching it. 
And that is driving more people to that program in a way every other thing did not. Like it had a big audience that kind of naturally created itself. But now there's this sense, well, if this is the biggest television show, it must mean something. And that kind of happened with Seinfeld. I think that when there was this awareness that these shows that were they're putting on Thursday when, you know, it was like Seinfeld and Friends and ER and Frasier briefly and all these things. Um, it was almost as though any show that was slotted in that NBC window was assumed to be at least worth examining because it might be important. Like it's just its placement there sort of validated it. And I don't think that Seinfeld got any like a leverage from that. I think they kind of created the leverage that they created that idea. Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of like, you know, you hear this all the time, obviously, and I know you're a music guy, but with bands, right? Like I saw them when there was 500 people in the venue and then they got right. There's always a tipping point, right? Mm -hmm. Where where the talk about it and, and you know, the popularity of it becomes bigger than the show itself. And, and that's what we think of Seinfeld seasons eight and nine, right? We're very hard on season eight and nine. We're not fans of it for the most part. We didn't put any of those episodes on our top 100 rankings. We, it's just a different show. It's just a completely different show once Larry leaves. I mean, yes. it changes once, once changes really after Sharon's leaves, then after Larry Charles leaves, then after Larry David leaves, it's completely different. And so, you know, but at the biggest number. So we could, when Jerry says, oh, we went out on top, Yes, you did, but what's on top, right? And to your point, is is it is it just everyone's watching it because they think they should be? Um, you know, but like if Seinfeld ended after season five or even after season seven, you know, I think it would be looked at more. I don't think it would be looked at as favorably as it is by most people, but by us, maybe maybe we're being you know pretentious or something. Well, I think it's better. No, I, I, here's you know here's what I think probably the difference is. Okay. Yeah. Um, you guys certainly, probably me as well, if you really like a, a program with this, this level of seriousness that you guys have, like you're doing this podcast where you're talking about this program <laughs> that's been off the air for 20 years or whatever, still continually, you are not experiencing that show in the same way as the average person. The average person experiences television through character, not through plot. So the fact that eight and nine, as terms of the way the stories are put together, do seem at times like, I don't know, a little too absurd for me. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, almost there's almost a sense that the show wants to reflect this idea that we're not taking this seriously, that I know this is a huge thing, but we you know um, that that does sort of kind of repel the super serious fan. But I think for the average person, all that really illustrates is how these fictional people became exceedingly real to them. I mean, that, that is the key. I always think about like, um, you know, uh, you know, how does a, how does a show sort of cement itself in people's minds? It's not what's happening in the show. It's this idea that the person watching it unconsciously views these people as real, even though they know they're not. In other words, no Seinfeld fan actually believed what they were watching was a documentary or whatever, but in the back of their mind, they were not looking at someone as like Elaine as a fictitious thing like they almost believed that there were certain like i don't know morals and ethics and ideas that she just had i, I it's, a, it's a fascinating thing with television i don't did you guys watch like mad men at all when that was on i didn't i think o'hara did though no did you watch mad men no it's funny <laughs> i'm kind of you bring up these shows like succession mad men like yeah. i won't watch those because people tell me to like <laughs> I'm one of those guys. Like, um, but yeah, I heard it's a great show. I've literally watched the pilot three times. I, I can't get past it. I watched the pilot when it originally aired, and it didn't do it for me. I just, I just felt it to be 
the same way I felt about billions. I mean, some shows just don't catch me. They seem to be, I oh, get them yeah. like, Oh, I got well, this. I'm not going to keep watching it. You know what I'm saying? The, but I know your point, point. I think the yeah. point I'm making is not that but it really, any, you can almost any, any show. show you want. Right. Right. It is that, that there you, you'll notice things like the reason I picked up, I picked on Madman is because there's a, a, a point late in the series where one of the characters has sex with someone um, just sort of for economic gain. And it had come after several seasons of people growing to really like this character, love mm. this character. And their reaction was like, she would never do that. That would never happen. She would never do that. Overlooking the fact that, well, A, it actually did kind of line up with how her character originally was when the show was created. But more so, a character is going to do whatever they're written to do. Right, <laughs> like right, there's no, like the they, have, they, they have no agency. Right. You can't, in the same way that like, so, uh, you know, I, I think that a, a show sort of changes and the calculus for a show changes when people, without even trying, stop thinking of it as a television show and start assuming that they're seeing people that they know in a real way. And that yeah, sounds very valid. cliche. No, that's valid. No, no, that's valid. No, that's valid. So, like, at, at those last two seasons of Seinfeld, I think people, a lot of people like them just as much simply because they just kind of felt that they were having more experiences with these specific people who, to some degree, had sort of kind of become, you know, amplifications of what they originally were like and and you know it's it didn't feel as real maybe as the early episodes of seinfeld did but i don't i don't think that matters to most people yeah it doesn't we're finding out it 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 became a like a gimmicky and catchphrasey you know and george just going ha ha and like elaine yelling at people like we always talk about kind of jerry and kramer kind of jerry and kramer essentially they're kind of steady throughout right um, those two characters. Kramer gets a little cartoonish, but Jerry, I mean, George and Elaine really, really just change it to different characters. But it's interesting the point you said, and I'm curious because I heard you and Simmons talking about this in sports. I think it relates here too, like whether it's LeBron or Jordan or Seinfeld, what's your favorite show? I feel like watching a show live brings a whole different perspective, right? So we, we watched Seinfeld live, and we, and we remember where we were when we watched it. And for the most part, when we did this podcast, we rewatched every episode. And for the most part, our feelings didn't change. Like this episode still, we remember what we were doing then. I'm just curious how you feel about that, like watching shows live and, and ranking certain shows, like this versus The Honeymooners, like Jordan versus Kareem. Like everyone has their, their thought process, but I feel like the media – has definitely ranked Seinfeld in the top echelon of shows of all time. We feel that way because we watch it live, and I'm curious if that's if that's the right thing to think, or are we not giving other shows enough credit? Well, that's a, that's a real interesting point, because one of the things that I mentioned in this book on the 90s, and maybe you guys will disagree with this, at least as it applies to Seinfeld, but... You know, so Seinfeld's this hugely popular show. Virtually every episode is being watched by more people than who watched the finale of Game of Thrones. Like, there is no extension of television now that's as popular as television was from this period. Um, even minor shows, you know, had bigger audiences because uh, of just the way sort of media was constructed. And yet, as popular as Seinfeld was, massive as the number of people watching it was my memory of this is if you missed an episode of Seinfeld you just kind of missed it 
Like you, you'd see it in the re- you'd see a rerun maybe in the summer or you know eventually it would go into syndication. But this idea of like appointment TV that you had to see something uh, in order to have a conversation with people, or you, you'll see people now who if they don't watch one of their favorite shows, they'll go to these elaborate lengths to make sure nobody spoils any detail from it because everything is serialized. It was like television mattered less in the nineties, even though it was a much bigger deal. So watching those shows live, I mean, I, my memory of it is that, you know, it was, uh, uh, it was, a, it was a positive feeling. If you were home on Thursday and you had nothing else, you could always watch this, you know? Now, if it, if this was happening in the present day, if a show like Seinfeld was happening now, uh, you know, people would DVR it or they would watch it on demand and it would more sort of fit into the part of their life where they had that time. But you were watching Seinfeld live. So right. it, you were fitting yourself into that time. Like if you, you know, when, when, when I when, when uh, I just remember used college for an example, I remember I was playing like intramural basketball on a Thursday night. And it was always like, well, I got to get home in time to the back to the dorm or whatever and take a shower and I'll be able to watch the show. Um, you know, so my memory of watching those episodes of Seinfeld is much more distinct than my memory of watching anything now. Right. Because now I know when I watched it. I watched it when I had time to watch it. That's why sports are still so important to people. They cannot dictate when they happen. They have to make the decision that I'm going to give up the rest of my life to watch, you know, Alabama, Georgia or whatever. It's like, they can't just say like, I'll watch that when it works for me. Yeah. I mean, that has a lot to do with it. I think it's, and we talk about this all the time too, is that, you know, it's hard for people that weren't around. I hate to say that old man type stuff, but like that, the show of Seinfeld, and you talk about this, I think it was in your, in the essay about um, the most villainous sitcom, but it might've been in the book, but um, it might actually, it was in the book. I'm pretty sure. Cause you talk about, you know, in the '60s there was records, and then in the '90s there was CDs. There's not much difference there, right? We we both understood what that meant to buy. Yeah, they're, a mechan- CD. they're mechanical right. differences, right? Yeah. And then you know, now it's like someone who didn't buy CDs all the time doesn't know idea. Can't relate to it, right? So you know, I was looking at Seinfeld as almost like the end of that entire archival era of the '90s. So you're watching Seinfeld, and there's you know phone messaging tapes, and there's pay phones, and there's all these things that you know no one really deals with anymore. Um, so in that respect, it, it feels dated, but to your, to your point earlier, the show is not dated because nothing that ha- everything that happens in the show is relatable at any point in time. The only thing that changes is technology. That's the only thing that changes everything else, the human condition, everything like that stays the same. So, you know, that goes for the viewer too, I guess is what you're talking about. So we were all watching it live. Then we're embedded in, in that era of, of got to get home and watch it and talk about it the next day. And we, you know, if we missed it, we missed it. And, um, you know, so it's all wrapped up into, which I'm, you know, this is why you wrote a book about an entire decade, right? It's all wrapped up into like, you know, that's the nineties. So I guess maybe the question here is like, does Seinfeld represent the nineties, the best of anything else we have as far as maybe not even just art, just in general. I mean, it's almost like an archive of the entire generation of, of what we lived through at that time. And, and maybe not to your point earlier about friends and being like, you know, we're in this time period, just more so of like, this is what it was, you know, the entire world looked like at the time. You know, they even, they parody the 90s while it's happening. Most TV shows didn't do that, right? Schindler's List, uh, OJ Trial, the JFK movie, you know, all these things, they were parodying as was happening in real time, which aside from SNL, no one really did that on you know, a sitcom. 
Yeah. Well, and, and because time was different then because there wasn't the internet and the way we experience the internet now, it felt as though they were commenting on these things uh, really quickly, even though the amount of time actually was quite a bit. I mean, the amount of time since from like when the English patient was popular to when that episode airs, it's a pretty big, like now it would seem like kind of an interminable gap, but that didn't then. It seemed, it seemed surprisingly modern. Um, is it the best encapsulation of the nineties? I mean, I suppose I would say in some ways, uh, the music of the early nineties maybe captured the way people thought about that decade uh, the most accurately that if you're, if you're trying to describe to someone who had no understanding of the 1990s, you could only use one thing. I probably would. I probably would use Nirvana or something. Like that. But I think if somebody said, "Well, I want to understand the comedic sensibilities of the period. What was what was considered collectively funny?" Then I would use Seinfeld because uh, you know the an overused term when talking about the 90s, of course, is irony and the ideas of being ironic and all these things. But uh, in many ways, Seinfeld was accurately described as a show that was based around an ironic distance from uh, problems that in reality uh, would feel kind of serious or, or real troubling. But in this world uh, was not. I, 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 and I think that that was like a that, that that would be a problematic idea to have now. Like if you had if you had a situation comedy now, and the characters were consistently making fun of COVID and Black Lives Matter and all these, if they, that was happening, I think people would really, really lose their mind. And that wasn't how it was in the '90s. You could still do that. I mean, right. it was it was acceptable. You know, the O.J. Simpson trial was ultimately the story of a guy who got away from you know, murdering two people, <laughs> and it was still packaged as acceptable comedy. And I think that that is something that you can see in a show like Seinfeld that you don't really see anymore. Uh, particularly the idea that if you package these things as you know as comedy, you didn't have to also sort of have some message at the end that shows, oh, actually, we know this is important or whatever. It wasn't like that. I mean, they it, it was like this is funny to us, and that is enough. There doesn't need to be a message beyond that. Any message you want to sort of impose onto this show, you can do. And I'm sure when you do these conversations with writers and people who are on Seinfeld, they often sort of talk about like what these things mean to them or or maybe what people how what they mean to fans. I always felt that like particularly from from like Larry David's perspective that he would like these things are funny. And uh, if they're uncomfortable, that proves it's funny. You wouldn't be uncomfortable if it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And Chuck, I think back then the judge and the jury was, um, you know, TV. Like there's no internet, no Twitter. So that, that brings me to a point, like whether it's Jordan or Seinfeld, especially in the nineties, man, those two were untouchable. It's as if they could do nothing wrong. They were like never criticized. I'm just curious. Was that, why was that? First off, I mean, they were obviously great at what they did. Um, was it lack of internet? Is it the, you know Twitter didn't come out yet? Like when did people start well, really? I mean, th digging in. I can't say I can't say the press didn't dig in. Oh yeah, because yeah. you can go back and you can find criticisms of of you know of uh, of Seinfeld uh, Bill Clinton, throughout, yeah. throughout its run. Yeah, you know, I guess this is probably okay. So th there's kind of this belief 
uh, that that say young people, people born uh, either during the '90s or post '90s, um, will watch a show like Friends and still sort of like it the same way it was liked at the time, but they're less comfortable by Seinfeld. It doesn't seem as funny to them, and they feel you know, the idea of like oh, like the the you know the 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 the, the Cuban parade or, or even the Puerto, Puerto Rican. Rican yeah. And um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, oh, that big wooden Indian that it, pl- it plays this role in that episode, like right. things like that. Uh, or even like when, when like, you know, Jerry says he likes Asian women and Elaine mm-hmm. says, you know, that's yeah. racist. And yeah. he's like, how can it be racist if I like them or whatever? Like all of these things, I think to a younger audience, it doesn't even, it doesn't even necessarily offend them, but They've almost been socialized to understand that this could be perceived as offensive. Right, right. And that is that's the key difference. Like you said, like the the judge and the jury. What was it? in a way in the, before the internet, um, there was a jury but no judge. <laughs> so in other words, if something was upsetting to people, um, maybe somebody would write about it in the Washington Post, or maybe somebody would write about it in the Atlantic, um, and that'd be about it. Right. It would be like, you know, it would be like people could read that and agree or disagree. It was actually, in some ways, a much more balanced relationship because people would put information out, they would put content out, and then there was uh, sort of a like a, a, a structure where people sort of commented on what it meant, and that was it. And then we kind of moved on. Now it's not so much like that. Now it is, though, like uh, if, if something is troubling, uh, we need to like a small number of people can sort of represent the way cultural thinking is supposed to be. So I, I, you know, I, it is interesting though. You also like, you don't see much criticism relative to what the content is of curb your enthusiasm. It's somewhat surprising to me. Somehow Larry David has been grandfathered in by this period of Seinfeld, I, 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 I'm always surprised by it that that it would seem as though there would be an attempt to really uh, uh, to 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 criticize what Larry David does now, but that doesn't happen either. And and I wonder what his relationship to Seinfeld, if that's part of it, that people still have a degree of goodwill toward this program that carries over to now. Yeah, it's an interesting point about Curb. I think some of it had to do with HBO, perhaps. Maybe not as big of an audience. I don't know, but it's a really good point because he's way. It's if any if you're going to be one of those people, you'd go after Curb in a second. So it's interesting that they don't. You're right. Um, everything you just said it reminded me. I actually wrote a note of this because I, I love the line you wrote this in your book. Um, you know about the '90s. If you weren't happy, the preferred stance was to simply shrug and accept that you weren't happy. Ambiguous disappointment wasn't that bad. Um, you know, you said the idea of policing morality or blaming strangers for the condition of one's own existence was perceived as overbearing and uncouth. I just love those the, that that I wrote that down as a note, and you just kind of summarized it right there. You know, well, we were that's how we grew up, and it's funny because you talked about in your book sort of how the the, the Gen X, it, it, the baby boomers, and the people after Gen X, millennials, almost kind of agreed on a lot of all these things, and here's the you know the Gen X people who were like, well. You know, they would was they both you had a thing where they both kind of they both didn't like um, reality bites. Yeah, that's what it was a whole thing about reality bites. Yes, the reason why they picked uh, Ethan Hawke instead of uh, yes, I found that fascinating because I'm like, yeah, that that, it's hard to put into words as a Gen X or whatever you want to call it what that feeling is of like why why do you guys care so like I don't know maybe I'm letting I'm talking for you now but I mean well no I mean. 
the you know when I Seinfeld do does a, that too to yeah, your point when yes. you just talked about it, exactly what they do. Yeah. Jerry's always, that's a shame. And oh, you know, just, yeah. just brushes it off to everyone. Just, Absolutely. It was, it was, you know, there was this idea, the nineties were, uh, to be honest, a pretty easy time to be alive relative to a lot of the periods before and after. And I say that when I mean like, you know, there was no war, there was no cold war, there was no hot war. Like, you know, it was a good time to be president. Clinton was a good president for that period because he, it was like it was kind of an easier time to govern a country. A lot of the problems that we had thought about the 60s and 70s um, and which we see as problems again now, there was sort of this tacit belief that some of these issues have been solved. Right. That like we had, they hadn't, we just kind of yes. figured they were. Yeah. Well, it, it, it felt like they had been because it was, right. you know, um, you know, it, it, it Janine Garofalo of, had a bit on that actually. Yeah, I interrupt, but I know, she had a good bit it, on that. It, it's it's kind of a strange thing because now I think younger people sort of look back at that period and sort of the cliches of that period and the and and the just the you know like the the, the idea that it was just it was completely like there's a line in reality bites where like the Ethan Hawke character actually says like, it is not my responsibility to make the world a world, a better place, you know? And it's kind of a throwaway funny line. I'll like what a jerk or whatever. But I think that that would be seen as just, how could someone think that? How could someone think that their experience is not actually part of the fabric of society? But it, you weren't required to feel that way. Right. That's how there were, I mean, there were people who did feel that way. It wasn't like nobody cared about anything. Right. But the expectation was not that you're a bad person right. if you don't care about, you know, the welfare of strangers and, and, and you know, all these with the, pro, the, 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 the problems outside of yourself. You, you, you could almost live your life exempt from that. Now, as even as I describe that, I can see why that sounds troubling. I can see why somebody <laughs> could listen to that and be like, so you just you didn't care about stuff. But it, it, was, it had more to do with was that responsibility enforced or was it optional? And the 90s were in a time when things were optional. The way you felt about things was your choice. Um, and and I, I think when people miss that period, in a lot of ways, that's what they're missing. Yeah, agreed. Well said. So when, when just jumping back to the 90s and Seinfeld, I mean, and you mentioned a bunch of characters from some other films, et cetera, but what was it about these four characters or even some of the, you know, we always talk about this show was built, quite frankly, from the, the supporting characters, whether it's George, George's dad or Jimmy or, you know, or Putty, you know, n name all these characters. I mean, what was it about these characters that kind of made them so unique and special and they, and they spoke to people in the 90s, if you will? Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what spoke to the nineties, but I do think you're, you bringing up something that is, that, that is interesting, which is that when say like a character like Putty is introduced or Jay Peterman or any of these kind of people, those principal four characters always had a sort of, you know, uh, interesting reactions to their presence. Some of the characters typically Kramer particularly, would sort of act unsurprised by the strangeness of the individual. And someone like Jerry or Lane or Georgia, kind of almost always Jerry, but usually maybe one of the other characters, would sort of perceive this character the way the audience perceived them and vocalize it. Sure. Like Judd Reinhold's character or whatever, when he was on. Like like the way that like Elaine and Jerry see him is the way the audience would see this person. 
there's a strangeness to wanting to be that good. You know, there's a, there was a strangeness to want to talk to someone that closely. Whereas typically in situation comedies, the idea is that these insane things are happening and nobody seems to notice, you know, it's, it's always this thing about sitcoms in general. People are constantly saying things that are hilarious and nobody laughs because they're living in this reality where this is how people talk or whatever. It's always surprising when you see a sitcom where someone laughs at someone else's joke. Now Seinfeld didn't laugh at their own jokes, but they did sort of the characters reflected the way uh, the viewer would feel, which is like, this person's an idiot. Why is, you know, and like they would, they would say that. And I, I, I think that, that it was, you know, at some point they removed, you know, I think halfway through they removed those little stand-up bits of Jerry talking to the audience before the show, like, you know, doing a stand-up or whatever, and they got away from that. There's no part of Seinfeld where like a character looks in the camera and talks to the audience. And yet there's a sense that that could happen at any moment, even though it never did. Like it always felt as though they were, this, particularly the Jerry character. You know, Jerry's Jerry, yeah. not, he's not a trained actor. He's a terrible actor technically, but he's perfect in this role because he seems to actually be who he is. Like there doesn't seem to be the separation of the fictional Jerry and the real Jerry all the way, to, you know. Um, and you know, it, it, it's it's funny when they. We know when they when they do the pitch and they do the false version of Seinfeld, they right. make the show Jerry or whatever. So you're seeing like these different, you know, <laughs> multiple levels of reality. And then within the context of the show Jerry, he's still acting the way he acts in Seinfeld. <laughs> it's like even when he's doing a false, <laughs> show, he right. never acts like he never does it. Um, and and. and there is something incredibly charming about that. And as we get further away and the fact that people still care about this show, things like that suddenly seem important. I mean, in, in a, in a weird way, I, I, and maybe you guys agree with me, Seinfeld feels more important now than it did when it was on. Like it feels more, it feels like a, like a, um, like the, the podcast you're doing seems completely justifiable to me in a way that if podcasting had existed in the nineties, and you were doing a Seinfeld podcast then, I would be like, oh, so these guys just like recap the episode. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wait, Which is what wait, we did yeah. when it was, when yeah. it was at, we were basically yeah. doing that our whole lives. Yeah. We were doing this <laughs> when it was happening live when we sat in biology class. What, what, uh, what prompted you guys to actually do a podcast about this? I mean, obviously you love the show, <laughs> but it can't be the only show you love. It's your favorite show. So what made you think we should actually do this all the time? <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of things came together at the exact right time. You know, the whole pandemic thing happened. Um, O'Hara's our Larry David. I knew if I reeled him into this thing, it would take off and he would uh, he would go off and uh, run with it. It started out with us. We, we basically recapped every season and then we, uh, we, we ranked him. And then I was like, okay. He's like, no, we need guests. And then we just started, you know... Getting guests and uh, what, is what, 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 what is your what is your relationship yeah, no, I mean, with Larry David? You you have a relationship with Larry David? Oh no, no, oh, he's, uh, Larry he's, David? he's he's calling me Larry David. I'm oh, saying, okay. he's our Larry David. Oh, he's, oh okay. he's my Larry David. I Jerry grabbed Larry David and said, uh, "Run." But away. I think it, it's just a it's a small yeah it's a small enough show right the greatest show ever but it's a small enough show nine seasons where you can talk about it you know in different perspectives different levels and it just everyone has a different perspective on it right we've, we've talked about this already tonight i mean the uh the absurdity of, of the later seasons 
Believe me, we, we put something like that on Twitter, ripping season eight and nine, and people go ballistic, right? And then we'll have an iconic line from, you know, the, the Keith Hernandez episode, and it does, nobody blinks an eye. It's, it's really interesting. but Crazy. And that's why I, I think about it. I'm like, and Chuck, you help me out here on, on ratings. Like, were 35 million people really watching this? I mean, like, the Nielsen system was based on, you know, uh, 5,000 homes and they kind of extrapolated and they assumed people were that many people were watching it. I, I don't know. It, it wasn't an exact science. Um, but I'm just curious if it was as big as we thought it is. Um, I know they can get more precise with it now, obviously with the HBOs in the world. And you mentioned this earlier, like the finale of game of Thrones was, you know, half the people watch. Well, that okay. versus, you know, that's, you know, that's a Super really, Nazi, right. So that's a real interesting point. It is, you know, it's it's a little bit the way like album sales were in the seventies, where it there are these numbers we ascribe, and it's like well, who really did the accounting on this? I don't know if thirty five million people. Um, but I will say this: that that this this suggests to me that the audience was that big. If you talk about like okay, you had mentioned you guys don't watch Succession, right? I watch. I seven. feel. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think of any popular right. show that you, you know, if I don't watch billions. Okay, I don't either. Okay, so none of us watch billions, right? <laughs> so go. if someone if someone comes up and makes a joke about billions or a reference to billions, there's a high likelihood that we will have no sense of that. Like we'll have no sense of what the joke is, who the char- who they're referring to. I, if you ask me what any of the characters' names on billions are, I think there actually is a character. It might be a character named Chuck. I think that's the way, but I only know it because it's my name or whatever. Um, but in the 1990s, there were many programs, Seinfeld among them, but many others, where you could have a conversation about the show without having watched it. Like there was, there was enough sort of like residual understanding of this that you would see things by chance or you would see so many, like, a, uh, I don't know, I, I remember what, like I, I'm – like I said, I graduated from high school in 1990. When I was in college, uh, I was on college newspaper staff, and there, there was uh, a staff who had never seen any of the Star Wars movies. She hadn't seen any of them. It was a possible thing to do in the early 90s, like the one time when, because like, you know, I was born in 72, so I watched these movies, but I was already getting a little old for them and stuff. But what's interesting is we gave her a quiz of like 10 questions about Star Wars. And I think she got eight of them right. Like she had never seen this movie, but she right. knew like Chewbacca was a Wookiee or whatever. Like, you know, Seinfeld was a little bit like that. Yeah. Like you can you can have conversations and make like people know like the yada yada thing is connected to Seinfeld. Even people who don't didn't watch that show. Right. The idea of, this, of, a, of a masturbation contest. People know that what that's tied to. And, where the, right. or what, um, and that's not how it is now. That's not, it's, it's very unlikely for someone to say, oh, like, like I didn't watch the show Stranger Things. And sometimes they'll see someone make a joke about it or a reference to it. Or like Harry Potter. I haven't read any of the Harry Potter books and they seem just mystifying to me. There was this shared culture. I mean, the the ultimate example, and this kind of predates the 90s, was Johnny Carson. That the Johnny, you know, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was so ubiquitous. And I mean, I, I've referenced this in other things that I've written, but I just, I still always blows my mind. I was, I used to watch the show Alice. Okay. Do you guys remember with the show Alice? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but that's not, Alice is on CBS. There's an episode of Alice where there, all the characters are staying in a hotel room. 
And the character of Vera can't fall asleep unless she watches The Tonight Show. So the Mel character, the cook of the show, does an impersonation of Johnny Carson. So on CBS, they were referencing a show on a rival network. Yeah. Because it was just a given that if you were watching television at night, you were watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's an incredible thing. You know, it's, it's weird to think that that something was was so widespread that uh, a network that's actively competing with it would be like, well, we still this is what this is just how it is. I mean, Seinfeld is the same way. You could have made there could have been a joke about Seinfeld, like on designing women or something. But that right. would have worked. People would have been able to, to understand that. And, and and that makes me think that while maybe not maybe there weren't 35 million people watching the beginning of the episode to the end, there were 35 million people every week who were sort of fluidly experiencing it. That either they were right. watching it, or they were they saw part of it, or they, they their their wife watched it or something, you know. Um, so there's like an ancillary viewership. Yeah, sure. And I, to get into your question from earlier too, you kind of just touched on, I mean, why we did this podcast, we could have done anything, right? We could have been here talking about the Yankees in 1991 or something or whatever we wanted really. But, but being niche number one is a good thing as far as focusing on one thing and kind of building it. And then we kind of get that audience. But the other thing is that the show, I mean, I, I could talk for himself, but I know his uh, confirmation name is George. So the show impacted our lives at a time when our lives like I was talking about, when I was a sports fan. You're a sports guy. Like, you know, from the time you're eight to the time you're 18 is when you're really a fan, right? And then you kind of are an adult. And you're, unless your team is winning a championship, it might be a little different. A Red Sox guy. I mean, you might not be, but pretty much, if you got a championship between eight and 18, your fandom kind of loosens up a little bit. You start to see these people as people and humans, and life catches up with you, and you're like, that's you know. So that you know, and and Lauren Michaels talks about SNL. You know, your favorite seasons always when you're in high school, and and that's. So for us, you know, Seinfeld started, we're in seventh grade and and that's peak, like, you know, we're, we're taking everything in. We're like sponges and, and it just resonated with our lives so much. And I just knew we could talk about it and we can, we can have these kind of conversations with people. So I'm like, you know, let's just do this thing. Right. So yeah, kind well, of I mean, that's like, why we did it, you know, it's, it's sort of the same reason that like, uh, you, it's very difficult to like a band, any new band, the way you liked your favorite band when you were in eighth grade. And the reason that is, is when you're a young person, when you're a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grader, you're still forming your personality. And the way you're doing it is by picking art that to you is a reflection of what your personality is supposed to be. So like, you know, my favorite band in eighth grade was Motley Crue. And it was because and like, no matter all the bands that came later that I know are better than Motley Crue, I've never had a fandom like that. You know, um, I think when a young person maybe like how like how old are you guys like I'm going to be 50 you're going to be well, we're 43 right 43, 43. Yeah. so yeah so you were you were relatively you were watching Seinfeld in like junior high yeah seventh grade I think it was yeah when it started, okay so yeah. so when I was in junior high the show that I watched that I loved was David Letterman and the reason I liked David Letterman is because it seemed to me like nobody in my school is funny like this but this is right. how I'm funny. The way he thinks, like, like his sense of humor is my sense of humor. And, and I think for a lot of people your age, when they were watching Seinfeld, you were just a kid. You weren't thinking about it like you weren't the semiotics of it or the language. But there was something about what came across and it was like, 
That's kind of the kind of person I am. I'm the kind of person who enjoys this, which means you're probably never going to find a television show in the future that's going to give you that feeling because now you are who you are. You don't need but, art to form right. your personality. That's you a really good one. point. Yeah, that's a really good point. But, but what was, I mean, we, also, we often talk about George Costanza's, you know, possibly the greatest TV character of all time. So him in, se- I, I related to him in seventh grade the same way I do as a 40 year old. Like, that's incredible. Like, how, how is that possible? I, I don't know if that's, you know, well, but you're, like, yeah. you're not related to Sam Malone as a, as a seventh grader like you are as a 40 year old. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Eating I mean, the that's, apple, talking to a girl, yeah. the, the whole thing. The, you know, I, there, there, every so often this happens. I, 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 I thought about this like Charlie Brown. I loved Charlie Brown when I was seven years old. I still love him now. There's something about the way Charlie Brown is that, to me, I understand in a kind of a deep, profound way. And I think perhaps because George was, you know, based upon and in many ways written by Larry David, that he was able to give him a sort of, I don't know, like a a, a, a specificity of his humanity which sounds like a very, like, I, I think that sounds like a very pretentious way of saying it, but like, there's, there's something specific about George. He's not just a loser. He's not just a liar. He's not just a good friend. He's none of those things would be a way to describe him in totality. It's the way these things sort of inter, interweave that, like, you know, that, that, you know the 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 idea of claiming you're a marine biologist or whatever and like you've always you know you always wanted to be called an architect but but now you got to be a marine biologist it's like well i i can figure this out i can do this or whatever you know uh i I, that i in a sense probably might be what you relate to maybe because you in all likelihood relate to the things about george that you find desirable and the thing about George that is desirable is uh, he can get away with anything until he can't. And I think that's a natural way to feel like everybody. Yeah. yeah. yeah, Like everybody kind of feels in life that in some ways it's like, I'm kind of faking my way through this. Like I'm kind of faking my way. Like I get like, you know, they talk about imposter syndrome. That's just a fancy word for being normal. People are not confident in most things. <laughs> right, like if if, right. if you're really confident, there's something fucking wrong with you. I mean, it's right, like right. like I I, I like I like you, life is complicated and hard, and it's it's always seems as though that we're all like wearing the suit of the person we want to be, and that is very much the ethos of George Costanza. Yeah, that exactly. He's try, he is trying to fake his way into being a person he would like to be. And I think that's an incredibly natural sentiment to have. It's know? incredible. You hit the nail right on the head with that. You really did. I mean, that's what it is. And when you, as, yeah, and and you, and if you, you know, it's that that adolescence feeling of of uh, you know he never, he's always faking it. The Mike Lupica, the you know Venetian blinds. The was uh, that wrong? Even Jason Alexander, I think it's Charlie Rose. It, it's something where he's talking to somebody about in an interview about. When he finally got the like his his favorite moment of of Costanza is the is the famous you know was that wrong when he got caught having sex with a cleaning woman because yeah. he said to himself like this was the time he was caught red handed like he finally had to fess up like you said always gets himself out of it the yeah. only thing he can go with was just like 
was that wrong? Like, I, yeah, I did it, but I didn't know. Is that wrong? Like, well, what's the problem here? I've been in a lot of off. Like he was going straight there, you know, and, and that's it. He couldn't get out. He couldn't get out of it. So he just went with that. You know, it's not a lie if you believe it or just all these things. I resonate with him just from the, you know, weird shit, just like I'm a stall man or like, you know, he call he calls the girl and he wants to eat an apple. So he feels like, you know, he's more relaxed, like just every little thing he did, you know, and that's why to your point earlier about, we get invested in the characters, and then in season eight, he's just going, "Oh, where's my Twix? Yeah. Like, what the hell is this? Like, this isn't who we, you know? Yeah, it's you know. There is a sense. There is a sense with his character. Well, with, with well, with the show in general, to be honest, all of these people um, that, and this kind of changes over time, and we do lose a little bit. But the uh, the the early part of the show, and I think especially the middle section of the show, it um, it's almost like what if the stupidest thing was everything? What if the most ridiculous thing about this interaction, the way, you know, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the dipping of chips or whatever, what if that became everything? Like we will take the smallest, most idiotic thing and have that be the basis for an entire worldview, for an entire way to live. I am a kind of person who does not do this thing, or I'm the kind of person who does this thing, you know? Um, that that's just I mean that's Curb. That, that's what Curb became yeah. really. Well, I mean, that, well, that's yeah. I mean that's, that's Larry that's, David. That, yeah, that's that's what, good writing. That's what right. good writing is because when you try when you're writing, uh, you know, uh, uh, this kind of multi level, multifaceted thing, you can't the, the the if you try to if you try to describe something big and complicated, it's going to be even harder to do in 22 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever. But if you take the smallest thing. And you're like, well, how can you build a whole show around this? How can you build an entire episode about waiting to sit down at a Chinese restaurant? Which I think is to me is the is my favorite episode of the series. Like if I like if some like like I don't even know if it's the one that I laugh the most at, it probably isn't. But to me, uh that is uh the the epitome of of what that show did that I have not seen before or since in any other program. That just this the, the the most mundane thing and it's like how many ways can we make this interesting and keep succeeding at it you know yeah uh, having he the the biggest loft of the episode is that he tells a story about having to take a go to the bathroom in a small apartment with a girl there that's why he left that's why he's waiting for the phone call like that's typical that's amazing george right there you know you everyone lived in new york city at one point knows that these small little apartments you know incredible um chuck this has been a blast before we let you go you know since you're a sports guy we always like to find out uh obviously you know you grew up in 70s north dakota guy phil jackson the whole thing but like what was your team who was your guy well okay so in north dakota the local team is considered to be all the minnesota franchises so the twins and the you know the vikings and i guess the timberwolves franchise launched when i was in high school i think um but here is this weird okay so so my dad my dad grew up loving the green bay packers uh and then the viking franchise was founded which then became the team that was cbs showed every week so my dad hated the vikings for existing because he didn't get to see the packers so i was raised to hate the local teams like my family hated the vikings (laughs) we liked the dallas cowboys and as a consequence, my hero was Roger Staubach. He was nice. the hero of my life. And, you know, uh, 
the person who's your hero when you're seven is your hero forever. So he's, you know, it's like, in fact, I mean, it's like, I, uh, uh, see if I can see, show this. Yeah. It's like in my office here. Um, uh, Number 12. Also one, That's yeah, another. there's a, wait, there, uh, I, I, it, it's, uh, so that, that was, you know, that, that, so it was, it was the Celtics, uh, and the, and, and the Cowboys. I love the Celtics. I love the Cowboys. Um, and, uh, you know, I watched the North Dakota State Bison. They were like the, the local college team. So I guess that would be my answer. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's funny. I mean, that your generation, they're like Steelers or Cowboys in New York. Yeah, Dolphins, Steelers, Cowboys, those Raiders. Because they're on TV, as George Christian says. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah you know. TV. Well, exactly. Well, Chuck, uh, this has been a blast for for everybody out there. Get the book. I mean, it's everything coming out uh, in about a week. I think when this when this when this Every, actually releases, I think it's going to be out in a week, February eighth. Everything right? from yeah. Tupac to Biggie to Kurt Cobain. Uh, it's an incredible read. The nine. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Thank you, Chuck. This was awesome. Thanks, really Chuck. Appreciate it, man. You Thank bet. You. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, you guys. I appreciate it.